A defining quality of today's guest is that he's not afraid to have a go. He started out in academia, made a fruitful foray into fiction writing, and has lately been telling the stories of everyday Canberrans as a journalist. Notably, after teaching politics and international relations at the ANU for over a decade, he had a go at politics in practice, running as an independent in the 2016 ACT election. Here's Kim Hung. I'm Kim Hun, and I teach international relations in the School of Politics and International Relations. So we're recording at ABC Radio Canberra up in Dixon, where you're now a roving reporter. But we have a lot of history to cover to explain how it is that you got to where you are today, from academic political candidate to academic slash radio reporter. Now, the starting point for talking about you is, I think, a lot earlier than the starting point for all my other guests on This Academic's Life. So the most pivotal experience that happened to you happened when you were just 18 months old, and it's gone on to shape a whole cascade of things in your life. For those unfamiliar with your story, what was it that happened to you when you were 18 months old? Yeah, sorry to be a questioning academic, but I'm not sure there's that much history. I'm always um, amazed, even flabbergasted, that anyone's interested in my story, to be honest. I sort of feel like I was in Vietnam, and then I came to Canberra, and now I do this. So it's not, it's not really that interesting as far as I'm concerned, but I'm willing to go with the flow, <laughs> and, and I'm certainly willing uh, to, uh, to agree with you when you say that there was a big rupture in my life before um, I, I could even remember it or have any uh, conscious memory of it, and that is uh, that we left Vietnam in a boat. We were out at sea for four or five days um, before we arrived at Malaysia, and the more I think about it, I've taught refugee politics for a decade now, and, and the more I think about it, the more important that boat becomes to my identity and to my family. It's something that my parents talked about for as long as I can remember, and it was just everything to us for those days, but also subsequently. You know, it was the thing that saved our lives. It was the thing that threatened our lives. Uh, it was the thing that really shaped our uh, identity as people who'd lost our homeland and then people who'd found uh, a new place to live, a new identity, a new sense of belonging. Mm. In terms of what you said there about how these events that have gone on to be so impactful is something that, you know, it was an event that you had no conscious memory of. Because of that, I've been a little bit curious about how it has had such an influence on everything that you've gone on to do and on your worldview and on your values. But then when I read your book, Where the Sea Takes Us, and I read about just what it was that your family went through and their sacrifice and their struggle and the depth of their love for you and your brother, I began to understand it, I felt. Mm, and. Uh, hearing you makes me understand it too. That's how big and deep it is for me. I think uh, the symbolism of that boat, the memory of that boat, frames really basic things in my uh, emotional life. Um, things like uh, what courage means. Uh, I understand that in terms of what my parents did, how much they gave up, risking their own lives, risking their children's lives, which are far, far more important to them. Uh, what love means, what sacrifice means, all of that uh, has been framed and the bar was set uh, 
by their stories about what they gave up, what they did um, to get on that boat, then to survive on that boat, and then to make it on a refugee island for six months after that. It's as simple as that, but incredibly profound for me. That journey, that boat, really has set just about everything I know about what courage means, what love and sacrifice means, uh, what ingenuity means. Uh, and it is connected to some of the things I've done. And it's a pretty high bar, I don't, but I don't view it as, as a... Um, it is connected to my sense of independence and running as an independent uh, politician in the ACT election. But uh, almost, I say that, it's almost a bit cheap because it's far bigger than that. It's That journey saved and made me. When I was reading your book and reading about just the story of the trauma of your family's journey to safety and just, as I mentioned, the level of sacrifice and struggle that your parents went through for you and your brother, I was reminded of this podcast that I listened to where a woman who was in her 20s talked about how she didn't want to have children because of what she experienced of just that level of devotion that her mother gave to her and this woman didn't feel as though she could possibly match that, um, that kind of standard, I suppose, that, that her mother had set. How did what your parents went through and um, what they gave to you, how has that gone on to, I guess, influence you? Yeah, that's a very interesting story. I feel I can empathize with her, but at the same time, I have the great privilege, I think, of writing a PhD about my parents' journey and trying to locate their journey and their lives in the 20th century history and politics of Vietnam. And that was probably the next great event. It was a much more slow burn event of my life and my sense of identity was to study that. It's an incredible privilege that usually people only get at the end of their lives. That's when they sort of sort things out and look into their family history. I did it at the front end as a young PhD scholar in, in my early 20s. I was working at the bakery at the same time for some of it. So so I think that's where I, where I empathize with someone who just feels the pressure of having to live up to their parents' devotion to them. My sense is uh, all that study, all that understanding, is, is, in some ways it didn't get me anywhere near the depth and the enormity of, of what they did, but it got me close enough to feel at ease with myself and my place in the world, in Australia and in Vietnam, uh, very much at ease, I should say. And as a consequence, now that I've had a child, I feel that, I wouldn't call it a pressure, but I feel that that my devotion to my son is also marked out by my parents' devotion to me. But that's a good thing, you know? That's a good thing as far as I'm concerned. It's not something I could avoid anyway. I can understand the only way I could avoid it is not having kids, but that's not something I want to do. So I, I really empathize with your friend, your associate. I'd love to meet her and we could talk about it. But because I accept that that sacrifice, that journey is is part of my family history, I just, I live with it and I, you know... Uh, I really savour it in many ways. So with your PhD thesis, the subject of that and the basis for that flowed on from, I believe, your trip to Vietnam when you were 22. And around that time, when you were 22, you sought to reconnect with your Vietnamese heritage and to learn more about your family story. What was it that triggered this urge to reconnect with your past? I think it was always there and I just had nothing else to do. That's why I empathize with a lot of my undergraduate students. You know, I had a, I, I was doing an arts law degree 
uh, at the ANU. I've been there a long time, you know, I've been there for most of my life now. And I just, I was very happy with part of it, but I didn't really have a concrete direction, which is totally fine. I think that's, that's probably the best place to be in one's late teens and early 20s. But I didn't have much to do, but I knew that I wanted, I always wanted to reconnect a bit with Vietnam. And as more I learned about it through books and through my undergraduate studies, the more I wanted to reconnect. And, 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 you know, it seemed totally logical and valuable to me. I never had a great desire to be an academic. I thought I'd go into journalism, actually, but I wanted to find out about my family history. I wanted to find out more about my parents. And I was living with them at the time, as I do now. So it's the same frustration that many, I think, young people could relate to about living with those parents, feeling trapped, feeling trapped in Canberra too. And one way to sort of manage that and address that was to both appreciate what was in front of me more, but also uh, understand how I got to be in Canberra, how I got to have the parents that I have. And so that's what I did. I was always committed to finding out about myself, A, and and I thought I had a good book in me. I thought I, I could write a book that there weren't very many good books about Vietnam, or at least one-stop shop books about Vietnam in the 20th century and in turn about Vietnamese in Australia. So I was very ambitious in a sense, but only towards that book. I wasn't ambitious in terms of having this academic's life. I wasn't ambitious uh, in terms of, and probably still not, to be honest, uh, probably I I didn't have a, I wasn't career-minded like that. And that's actually kept going. Actually, I'm interested in projects. I'm interested in ideas, but I'm not a. I'm not that interested in the professional pursuit of academia. Right. So, given that, and given you had never, I guess, envisaged um, that you would become an academic, what is it that led you down that path? Because you've now been at the ANU for, I think, about 23 years, if you were to count up your undergraduate studies, postgraduate studies, and then teaching and researching. Yeah, what is it that led you there and what keeps you tethered to the ANU? Well, a few things. Firstly, inertia can be uh, (laughs) a pretty potent force. My family's here. My family's in Canberra. You know, where else would I want to be? They mean everything to me. And that means my my parents, but also my brother, my sister-in-law and my nephew and my niece and my son. They're here. You know, there's no better place for me as a consequence. Uh, Also... What led me into academic life was in part a desire to teach international relations in particular, some of the biggest themes uh, that engulf all of us and uh, determine the fate of the world. Uh, What's not to like about understanding that and then helping hundreds of people a year really uh, understand international affairs, globalization, the rise of China and all, global terror, you know, they're, they're all big ticket items for me. But also, I've got to say, a lot of this, so we've got inertia, we've got incredible desire to be with family and also desire to teach and learn, but also a lot of things in life are happenstance, I found, and I started conceiving of an academic career after September 11, uh, when a lot of students were starting to turn towards international affairs because of those uh, horrible uh, terrorist acts. And so there was an incredible rush of students. There was a small window of time in which we just didn't have enough good teachers of international relations just after uh, September 11. And so I'd finished my PhD a few years after that. And uh, I sort of slotted in, you know, so it was a bit of inertia, a bit of good luck. 
and a bit of a desire to be in Canberra and also uh, teach and do international relations. Did the events of September 11 impact you then in any way other than creating this opportunity for you to then teach international relations? I was actually tutoring at the time. It was probably the first semester that I'd ever tutored. And my memory of it was that I'd lined up this great tutor on gender and international relations and was about to tutor the day after and we just threw it all out the window, right? And we were so unaware of what terrorism means, what Islam is, you know. I, I remember not being sure and, and sending out and all the tutors were not sure how to spell Muslim. Was it M-O-E-L-E-M or was it M-U-S-L-I-M? That, that question sort of been... Uh, resolved in the latter. But you know what I mean? We didn't even know, really, there was different ways to spell Muslim. We didn't have uh, terrorism in our consciousness like we do now. Um, so so I think conceptually and intellectually, it, over time, it made a very big difference. I also was supposed to go on a research trip for my PhD, and I remember being really frightened about what to do. I was going to the US amongst other places. And this was this sounds crazy now, but anyone who lived through that time was actually... It was actually t- made total sense to be frightened about flying on a plane. You know, I wasn't sure I was going to postpone the trip. And then I snapped my Achilles playing netball. So I postponed it anyway because I couldn't walk. But yeah, I, I probably would have postponed it anyway because there was so much concern about uh, getting on planes in the, in really, in certainly the weeks and, and also the months after September 11, 2001. And so how did you get over that fear? Well, it wasn't a huge fear. We just carry on. That's uh, that's part of uh, what um, the Israelis do so well, I think, that you just tidy yourself up and tidy up the, the carnage as fast as possible because if you're too, obviously, if you're too caught up in that fear, then you're losing out, you know, that the terrorists, it's a catchphrase, isn't it? The terrorists have won. To rewind back a little bit, so you've been teaching for more than a decade now and there's a cliche that teachers, you know, learn as much from their students as they teach their students. From talking to you previously, I understand that that truism does actually hold for you, that you've learned a lot from your students and actually been quite inspired by them. Would you be able to elaborate on that? Yeah, absolutely. I've been uh, inspired by my students throughout my teaching career. It's a rather strange cyclical experience over time, um, teaching people who are largely the same age. It used to be different. There'd be more mature age students. But in some ways, I have this vampiri- there's a vampirical quality that you sort of suck their blood and energy as a lecturer. And part of the thing that I've really gained a lot from, I think, is that students are in a state of transition, you know, they're breaking free from whatever their old lives were, usually with parents, often with parents and and in their homes, and they're trying to find a place in the world. And I've been immensely inspired by that, not necessarily the high achievers. High achievers are fine with me too. But over the years, I've always made sure that I put some time aside and paid attention to quieter students and also to students who are really struggling. And they're the ones that Sometimes I've, I've maintained a friendship or developed a friendship with over the years, more and more, I think. Uh, but I, I don't pretend to be that prejudiced. I've got plenty of, a few quite, well, I've got high achieving uh, students that I still remain in contact with. But I've really admired students who've dealt with mental health issues, uh, people who've taken 10 years to 
complete their degree and that I've probably taught three times in the same course because they've had some sort of um, trauma in their lives or inability to complete work as we understand work. And I've been immensely encouraged by their their courage. You know, they encourage me. I understand encouragement in that most basic sense of fostering courage. And it's it's really difficult because it's you don't have a lot of time to talk to students and find out what's going on with them. It takes quite a bit of effort and time sometimes. And it doesn't always work out. But I've found there's really a lot of students who struggle through their, their degrees and do incredible things afterwards. They might have startups, they might set up families, they might go on and do PhDs overseas, they write books, they work in not-for-profits, they work in the public service. But to see where they've come from and then how they develop, usually to make far more money than I'll ever make, uh, that goads me in some ways, but also inspires me to to do something too, you know? So I, I, I have at times felt like, Jesus, Kimbo, you've just done the same sort of thing for decades now but it's not the same sort of thing it's with different students and now and then I'll have a break and be inspired by those students to try something different. When I think about your 23 years at the ANU I picture like this mountain that has seen all these changes happening around it you know but it itself has um, remained, I guess, relatively stable and constant. So you've been there at the ANU studying and now you're teaching students. So you've been there across all these years and you've experienced this whole kind of cycle. I guess I'm wondering what your reflections are on that kind of experience of passing through all these different stages, seeing these kids who uh, were once where you are in this exact same place where you once were. That, that uh, I have to reflect upon that for just a little. And my sense is that word of constancy. I've, I've never thought about my life or my time at the ANU in terms of constancy. It relates to this idea of mine that I'm always surprised to hear that anyone's interested in this academic's life. There has been a constancy. I'm not that complicated. I basically exercise to stay healthy. I look after my family and friends because they're massively important to me. And I work to make money. That's it. That's constant for me, you know. That's I've, uh, I may have uh, done those things in slightly different ways, but that's pretty much it. And that's I know it's it's a radically uninteresting academic life and human life, really mine. But I also note there are benefits of being in the same place for so long that you. I have to remind myself, but I do empathise with students. Oddly enough, there was probably and students. Some of my students will attest to this. Probably in some of my thirties. I've probably lost touch a bit for all sorts of reasons with students, with teaching. And it's been really hard work to reconnect with um, academic life and, and teaching life over the last two years, really. Made a lot of mistakes. But but I think it's in part facilitated by midlife. Midlife is very similar to early 20s or late teens because all those things that you achieved in your early 20s become monotonous. and in, And you have to... You don't have to. Well, you either, you know, have an affair and, and buy a sports car, was what you traditionally did, or if you're, it's, it's a slightly gendered probably, or more than slightly gendered, or you adjust, you know, and then you remake yourself. So actually, as I've become older, at least in this little period, I've really felt like I've empathized with students more because we're in these highly transitional, somewhat anxious uh, times of our lives. Hmm. So you didn't go out and buy that Maserati and 
um, well, I guess, yeah, let's just stick with by that Maserati. Um, instead, you decided to run for politics. So in 2016, after more than a decade of teaching and researching the political theory of things, you ran as an independent in the ACT election in the electorate of Ginandera. And you went into that race with the knowledge and the expectation that you weren't going to win. So can you talk about what your intentions were in running? Mm. Fundamentally, I wanted to run for my community. I know it sounds cheap, but this is the community that made and saved me in a, in a far less ambiguous way than the boat. You know, this, we came here with nothing. Uh, we'd be nothing without Canberra. So I really just wanted to do it for my community, even though I knew I, I wasn't going to win. My hope was that I'd do okay and that some people would learn lessons from that, uh, particularly my students, whether it be book-type lessons and academic-type lessons, but more hopefully practical lessons so someone could do it better than me. So I really wanted to run in large part for my community. Uh, and, and also the academic sense, I think, that you touched upon is I wanted questions answered. You know, I'd, I'd taught and studied politics for so long to the extent that it's something you study as a scientist. You want to test ideas. I really wanted to test some of ideas, particularly uh, political philosophical ideas, right back to Plato, to Machiavelli, uh, a bit of Nietzsche too. I also like the creative side to my life, you know. I, I, the creative side of my life is very important and, and politics is also an art. So it is traditionally in the arts faculty or the faculty of arts. And to the extent that it is an art, you want to express yourself. And I wanted to test some ideas, but also uh, express myself, express uh, myself as an independent and as a person, but also also aesthetically uh, and try to do things that were cool and beautiful and funky. I think that that's really important and missing in politics too. There's a line from your book, Vietnam, as if, that I've noted down, which went... Um, to know the seeds sown in former lives, behold the fruits reaped in this one. And in thinking about how you ran for politics, I feel like you taking on that challenge was um, closely tied to your sense of, I guess, maybe obligation to your parents um, and to your students and maybe feeling a sense of there being these expectations to them that you wanted to fulfil. What would be your comment on that? Yeah, I did feel obliged to my community and my students because a lot of people have believed in me over the years. They've invested in me in, in really significant ways. And I don't, think, I don't think anyone invested in me so that I could go for grants and publish academic articles and be promoted to professor. You know, uh, that, that, that's really great. That's great for lots of people. That's totally logical. That's the professional path for... Uh, academics, but not this academic's life. I always felt like I wanted to do something a bit different, not necessarily better, but in many ways, I'm an applied social scientist, you know, but not, not even in that formal sense. Everything I teach, I want to apply. I want to apply ideas about leadership. I want to apply ideas about creativity. I want to apply uh, ideas about what it means to belong in a society. And so it really made a lot of sense, even though I, I knew I wasn't going to win. I knew enough about how the electoral system in Canberra works and the challenges of starting from scratch too, that I wasn't going to win. But uh, at least I could have said I tried, could have said that to my students. Uh, now I can say that to my students, can say that to my son, that I tried. 
I'll never forget it. I can't tell you of how how absolutely petrifying it is to step out. You can even imagine. I think anyone can imagine as an independent to step out. It's the greatest sort of act of existential vulnerability in many ways to step out one day and say, I am running. I'm running. Uh, believe in me. Vote for me. You know, and I did it. I didn't even step out. I rode out. I rode out one morning with a three-meter flag stuck to the tag along of my, my tag alongs my son's bike that was then attached to mine, and it said "Go Kimbo 2016." Um, that is mad. Don't get me wrong. I'm, nec- I'm not necessarily gloating about that, but whether you whether you think that was a good or bad thing, or a mad or a sane thing, it took a lot of guts, and I never enjoyed it. I never enjoyed it. I would have done it for two or three months straight. I don't even like thinking about it. It's a bit triggering in some ways. But to ride every morning, in the rain in particular, with a flag behind you saying, this is who I am. Vote for me. I'm standing up for myself and for my community. Uh, it, was, it was painful, physically painful. But it was also, you know, I must say at times you get, it's like exercise generally, endurance exercise anyway. Got into a rhythm. You know, I'd be out for 100 Ks a day on this crazy bike, squeaky bike. You get into a rhythm. It was a way to keep fit and in some ways, even though people are honking and some people are screaming, not many, I'd say that there wasn't ever a day that I didn't dread doing it and standing up and riding out and being a, a, a politician. There was probably only one or two days when I came home and I was really like, God, that was horrible. You know, there was something satisfying about each day too. I mean, I'm sure that nobody would have judged you if you took a day off and, you know, decided not to go riding out in the rain. What was it that drove you to keep putting yourself out there in that way? Um, a sheer desire to, to not stuff up and to try to get as many votes as possible. So particularly when it rained, my a mate, a, a buddy that I've had for a long time and I, I play sports with, he, he made a point that that's when people are going to be out there in their cars and that's when... They're going to, this is a, a slightly gendered thing, but I understand it in part through a Machiavellian lens that people want to vote for someone who's going to be there for them, someone who's going to be constant. And for me, that meant that you had to be consistently showing that you have a certain virtue about you that means that you'll be there for people, but also uh, that you'll be a bit of a rock uh, that also you can do things that other people can't do, even if that's not <laughs> entirely true. So yeah, so th- that's what drove just a desire to win and do something different, and not not to win, I should say, <laughs> desire not to really lose badly. I have known people who've run and and really bombed out, and and it's not something that they want to talk about ever. You know, it really hurts your self esteem. I wanted to avoid that, even though I could always conceived it as a possibility, maybe even a probability. I really wanted to avoid bombing out. And that means getting dozens scores or even a couple of hundred votes uh, would have, uh, well, you know, I would have survived. That's what having family and 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 having self belief is all about. And you need a fair bit of that in politics. So I would have survived, but I really want to avoid that. Mm. You mentioned Machiavelli, and we've spoken before about Machiavelli's The Prince. Can you talk about how your personal story and how your knowledge of political theory informed your campaign from the posters that you put up featuring your torso and featuring um, your pair of specs to doing all that writing through your electorate? Yeah. So uh, Machiavelli's not by any means my favourite political thinker. 
But I think he makes some really important points about uh, what he calls virtu. Virtu. It's not virtue, but rather it comes from the same Latin word as virile. So uh, much of his uh, of the prince is about how a young prince can defeat and uh, take power from an older prince. And there's a lot of difficulties with that because the older prince has a status quo in their favor. So one thing you have to do is to be dynamic. Uh, you have to defeat fortune. He says that's chance and things that will always screw you up. But your fortune favors the brave. So what does the young virtuoso prince do? You have to be dynamic and look strong and look like you can do things that other people can't do. So I was I was very conscious of that very high influential in my subconscious. That's all I know about politics is from political theory. So there were things like I wanted to be dynamic. So I'm on the bike every day. My website was Go Kimbo. That was one of the catchphrases, Go Kimbo. You know, you can go for Kimbo, but Kimbo's going too. Very dynamic. Uh, Once again, I hope. Uh, I think that's really important. Uh, Also, I was most infamous for uh, a topless uh, poster, but I think that's really important too. I, I wanted to look strong and, and virile in that way, you know. Uh, it's not hardly the best physique ever, but it's important, I think, to say, I'm not afraid, I'm, I'm, I'm exercising, I'm going to be there for you. Had tattoos on too, my feeler. And also, strategically, you're coming from nothing. No one knows who you are. Those two huge steps for an independent, uh, by and large, are to get known and then get people voting for you. They're massive steps when no one knows you. So you have to do something different. I don't see how an independent who's not a celebrity already can get very far by just looking like everyone else. So I think there's a certain amount of political realism about having to take risks and do something that's uh, out there and a bit extravagant. So, you know, uh, it was top off and tats on for me. But even the tats represent something that's important for Machiavelli, that idea that you mentioned about constancy, that I'm not going anywhere. You know, my tats were Belco 2617. What did it say? This is where I was born and bred. Uh, I flew here and grew here. You know, and I'm not going to run in another seat. I'm not going to um, do it for any anyone else. I'm not going to calculate. So I figure I can do my best in Gungarland and somehow I'm going to run it in somewhere that I don't live and that I don't feel like I belong to. Uh, that was really important to me. Mm. And I guess in uh, pedalling on that stationary bike next to your campaign poster, um, that really reinforces that idea of constancy and you really being there in your electorate. Yeah, and I <laughs> pedalled at night. Um, uh, on that stationary bike because it's safer and I shone lights onto a sign or something. That's pretty crazy. But the, there was uh, an important symbolism there too. There was a feeling. Remember, it's 2016. It's the year of the rise of Trump. It's uh, the year of the Brexit really explodes onto the scene and becomes a reality. And there's a year of massive disillusionment that really has persisted by and large, but it's a huge year for Western liberal democracies. And and a, a lot of independents, including me, were trying to do something about that, trying to tap into that and then do something about that. So riding at night with that light, I was trying to say, you know, number one, curse the darkness. Number two, shine a light. Number three, go Kimbo 2016. So you've been a presenter and then a reporter with ABC Radio Canberra for the past few years now. What motivated you to go into radio and to take on that specific role of telling the stories of Canberrans? Yeah, that's a good question too. Once again, chance plays a great part in this. Uh, I'd be doing a little segment for breakfast 
and uh, on on everyday philosophy and anthropology, things like what are hipsters about, um, what's going on with women who dye their armpit hairs, um, those sort of questions. Why do we have open planned kitchens? And after I ran, they asked me to become a presenter. But they actually at the ABC got me radically wrong. <laughs> that I was somehow exuberant. I got myself radically wrong. I thought there'd be... Because I'd always wanted to be a bit of a journalist. Uh, and I like the idea of radio. I'm a big podcaster. I like listening. I like the intimacy. And I really like radio because it hits the sweet spot for me. It's not as hard as reading, but it's not as easy as TV, you know? So I really liked it. And the, and I was asked to, to present to Drive on Friday afternoons. And I was really keen to try new things. It was probably a bit of midlife crisis. I tried to be a politician. It was painful, but it sort of worked out, even though I didn't win because I didn't win. So I thought this was another opportunity to stretch myself and to serve my community. So I said yes, but I was mad because it was incredibly painful. It was incredibly painful to be a presenter, particularly when you're only presenting every fortnight, every week, and you're doing reporting the other week. It was like every show was my first show. And it was so full of angst. It was so full of anxiety. And I was probably already scarred a bit from the election and being exposed by that. So uh, it was really, really difficult. But I got through that year presenting. And once again, I can sort of ask you to imagine, you know, that first time that the on-air light comes on, I'm looking at it now. And it's so incredibly painful to look at. And you think you've prepared as well as you can. You think you can present the, press the buttons and you, you think that you've got all the support in the world, which I sort of did. But then the on-air light comes on and it's just you and this microphone in this dark room talking to 40,000 people. That's really scary, really scary. And then to do it every fortnight. Uh, but anyway, I got through and now I do um, something that fits me in many ways much better. I tell stories about ordinary people. I help give them a voice. It's a political thing too for me, you know. That's the only real proviso that I've set for myself or condition in terms of my work here is that I try to, I only really talk to people who've never been in the media before, try to give people a voice and help my community. This is a philosophical point too. Help Canberra understand people on the margins and different sort of people with a hope that somehow we can believe in each other a bit better and in turn believe in our city, believe in Canberra. Final question. So you've done a lot of things that have scared you. You've had a go at things, be it doing radio, politics, writing fiction. I'm curious about what your approach and your philosophy is in relation to success and failure. Towards success and failure. Wow, I'd never thought about that. I don't really think about success and failure. I, I think about what's in, ahead of me what's ahead of me at a particular moment. I'm really not in a sort of wanky mindfulness way. There's nothing wrong with mindfulness. It's just not necessarily uh, for me. That would be my philosophy about success and failure. I don't think about it at all. I, I really think quite a lot about what's good for other people. I don't, I, to be honest, I know this sounds weird because it's just, it sounds like false altruism, but I don't really think about myself that much. I think about what I want to achieve for other people, people who've invested in me, but people who are far worse off than me. And then I sort of close my eyes and grip my teeth and go for it and see how long I can hang on for, you know. I really don't think about success and failure that much at all. Very well then. Uh, Kim Hung, thanks very much for talking to me. Thanks, Ivana. 
This Academics Life is written and produced by me, Ivana Ho, for the College of Arts and Social Sciences at the Australian National University. The theme music is Snowblower by Flower Crown. If you like this show, subscribe and be sure to tell all your academic and non-academic friends about it. And may I recommend to you episode four of our sister podcast, Better Things. In that episode, economic anthropologist Dr. Carly Schuster dissects the argument that money sullies relationships and we should keep the two separate. That's it for now. Catch you next time.